This week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called Should We Fear Democracy and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas Festival at the Barbican in London in October 2014. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Should We Fear Democracy, this uh, keynote controversy discussion here at the Battle of Ideas. Thank you for coming uh, here on a Sunday morning. I think yesterday we had some very lively, very controversial, very challenging discussions all day and what was really great was that the place was packed and as you know as we speak there are another eight debates going on. Always to my surprise at the Battle of Ideas I always think Sunday morning no one's going to be here. I don't really know what it says about you that you are but I'm delighted that you've, uh, that you've made it. So I, for those of you who don't know me I'm Claire Fox and I'm the director of the Institute of Ideas and I, I think this discussion couldn't be more appropriate. In fact, the whole discussion around democracy resonated a lot through the discussions yesterday, so we're kind of coming at, uh, back at it. But I spoke uh, a, a long time yesterday to a group of people who were asking me what I thought about the, the Hong Kong Occupy movement and the whole debate around uh, democracy that's going on in relation to that. It's just that, as this is the 10th anniversary of the Battle of Ideas, I... I remember uh, getting a shock uh, about four or five years ago when we were organising some, some, in fact, a keynote discussion, and quite a lot of people in the audience started saying, well, you know, if you think about it, the problem is, if you think about it, China's got it right, um, because they can just get on and do things, um, you know, not like India, where things get in the way. And when they said things get in the way, presumably they meant the people. Um, and democracy. And anyway, and so this, you know, and I thought, oh, you know, the mad Maoists are in, uh, China's great. But then I realised that, oh no, they were getting a clap. And that actually people were sort of saying, well, you know, democracy is a real problem because it slows things down. And that made me start thinking about the way we view democracy. And I think that there's no doubt about it, democracy is not, cannot just be asserted as democracy's, you know, the, 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 the great value that we all uh, should appreciate because. Actually, it's much more contended than that. Um, and so um, that's why we thought we'd organise this discussion. It's also the case that, just, just as I mentioned, occupying Hong Kong, that I myself um, found it extraordinary during the Occupy movement, which was only just down the road here at St Paul's, when I was invited to go down there and sort of address some students when um, they were proudly proclaiming that they represented the 99% and uh, as against 1%, and I said, oh, well, you know, have you been voted in? And they didn't laugh, and they didn't get it, but they still carried on to say they represented the 99%. And I think that there are people now who think, oh, democracy, what does that mean? We are the real people, and we represent the when we act on their behalf. So they're the kind of things we want to untangle, with the background as well of the Scottish referendum in this country, whether the the people who lost at 45% really are the winners, as people say, whether that was a corruption of democracy, whether we should be having referendums at all, uh, let alone the fact that yesterday, one of the debates on immigration, we had the, um, the UKIP migration uh, speaker, actually really challenging, interesting discussion. And, you know, people are, in this country at least, saying, what are we going to do about UKIP? The fact that they're popular it doesn't seem to matter, it's, um, and there seems to be some sort of reaction against populism. So these are the issues I'm wanting to tease out. So, great panel that impossibly has to uh, kind of take any look they want at this in five to seven minutes. So the first person we're going to hear from is uh, over there at the end, Brendan O'Neill, who is the editor of Spiked, 
a magazine that uh, wants to make history as well as report it. Since we started the Battle of Ideas Festival, and this is our 10th year, despite it being one of the uh, media uh, reporters, and obviously we've worked closely with them over the years. Brendan is well known as a, uh, not only as the editor of Spikes, but as a columnist for the big issue uh, in London, the Australian in Sydney. He blogs for The Telegraph, writes for The Spectator, been nominated, uh, nominated for Columnist of the Year Award at the Press Publishing uh, Awards. He's been described as one of Britain's leading left-wing uh, thinkers by the Daily Mail and as a professional troll also by the Daily Mail. So it's good to know they're consistent. But can we give him a warm welcome, please? Um, then we're going to be hearing from Professor Chantal Mouffe, who is Professor of Political Theory at the University of Westminster in London, a member of the Collège International de Philosophie in Paris, you can see why I've failed my French A-level, um, has edited and written uh, many books on the issue of democracy, including The Democratic Paradox, On the Political, and most recently, Agnostics, Thinking the World Politically. What she doesn't know is that I've wanted to get her here for a long time, so I'm absolutely delighted to have her here. Can we give her a warm welcome, please? Then we're going to hear from Professor Ivan Krastev. Um, Ivan is Chair of the Centre for Liberal Strategies in Sofia. He's a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. In 2013 and 14, Richard von Weizsäcker, fellow of Bosch Stiftung in Berlin. In Berlin. Um, the author of many books uh, to note uh, at the moment, Democracy Disrupted the Global Politics of Protest, which is a really uh, important book, I think, and in mistrust we can trust. Can democracy survive who we don't, when we don't trust our leaders? Ivan spoke at the festival a couple of years ago, and uh, we're absolutely delighted to have him back. He was one of the highlights then, and I'm delighted he's here. Can we give him a warm welcome, please? So we've established uh, with my next speaker, uh, uh, Dr. David Runciman, who's Professor of Political Thought at the Department of Politics and International Studies Policy at Cambridge University. We've established that he spoke once before. We can't remember what he spoke on. He can't, I can't. He said he remembers a lot of shouting. I said, I know it was controversial. We couldn't work out what it was. Anyway, it made something of a mark on him. Can we try and impress upon him that content is more important than the shouting uh, today? But actually, uh, we are delighted to have him back. Uh, he's a recipient of the Leverhulme Major Research Fellowship Award in a, to a project about how democracies cope with disasters. He writes regularly for the FT, and I'm sure many of you read him in the LRB as well. He, um, he was uh, shortlisted in 2007 for the David Watt Prize for Political Journalism, the author of a number of academic books, the most recent, the, the Confidence Trap, A History of Democracy in Crisis from World War I to the Present. Can we give him a warm welcome, please? And, and just finally to say about this uh, session as well is, is that it's, uh, was very much inspired, not just by our thinking on it, but by working with uh, an international network of debating organisations called Time to Talk. And we're very grateful to them to inspire this. They're thinking about what's happening in Europe, democracy, issues of trust, politics, and so on. And we're very proud of the Institute of Ideas and with Battle of Ideas to be associated with international organisations who think it's time to talk, because so do we. Um, so thanks to them for their support. Now, Brendan, your thoughts, please. Thank you. Um, I think the problem we face today is that we are all technically enfranchised, but politically disenfranchised. And what I mean by that is that in the West, we all have the vote, 
We all have that slip of paper on which we put our cross once every three or four years. But we aren't given anything of substance to vote on. We aren't given any meaningful or important choices to make. In fact, all the big ideas have been taken off the political table. And I think too often the crisis of democracy is treated as a technical thing or a problem of attitudes. So it's treated as a problem of apathy amongst the public or a failure to connect amongst the uh, political class. And as a result, people think democracy can be fixed with technical solutions. Uh, so, you know, they talk about um, uh, putting voting booths in supermarkets, for example, or uh, educating the elite about how to speak to us more clearly and more uh, passionately. But I think, actually, the crisis of democracy is not a technical thing at all. It's, it's a political thing. It's a problem of substance. It is the dearth of political ideas, a lack of substance, that underpins the uh, crisis of democracy. So anyone with a genuine democratising zeal, anyone who is serious about reviving democracy, really just needs to ask himself one question, which is how can we expand the issues that are talked about? That is the only way, I think, to resuscitate democracy. And the most curious thing about the era we live in is that the democratic franchise is expanding while the content of democracy is shrinking. So the right to vote is spreading at, at the same time as the things and issues we are asked to vote on are, are becoming narrower and narrower. And in fact, in many ways, we live in an era of frantic enfranchisement. The political class wants to give the vote to pretty much everyone. You know, there's a serious discussion in the Labour Party here and elsewhere about uh, giving the vote to 16-year-olds, which, to my mind, would utterly infantilise the democratic process. And of course, 16-year-olds had the vote in the Scottish referendum, which I think is a sign of things to come. Uh, some want to give the vote to prisoners. You know, Brussels bureaucrats are obsessed with giving the votes to uh, prisoners. Some leftists think it would be a great idea to allow prisoners to vote. You know, these people really ought to brush up on, on the arguments of the Chartists, those great Democrats, who recognise that allowing prisoners to vote would, would make a mockery of democracy. And when um, political agitators aren't calling for the franchise to be expanded to new constituencies, they're insisting that it should be made easier for those of us who already have the right to vote to exercise that right. So there's all the talk about voting booths in supermarkets. Some people have proposed sending election officials to our homes on election day, knocking on our doors and saying, fill in this ballot paper and we'll take it back for you. They're so desperate for the franchise to be used, they're so desperate for us to vote, they want to come knocking on our doors and plead with us to exercise our right, our right to vote. And I think uh, the curious thing is that al alongside all this spreading of the right to vote and the spreading of the ability to vote, we've witnessed a real shriveling of what we are asked to vote on. On ballot papers today, there are no major choices, no big ideas, no clashing visions. The choice is no longer an ideological or political one. It is most often just the choice between alternative forms of economic management, between mildly differing views for how the deficit should be dealt with, or what the exact cap on immigration should be. And even in the, in the case of the Scottish referendum, I think we could see this process happening. You know, this looked like a big issue vote. It seemed like the future of the union, the future of the nation, the history of Britain itself was up for grabs, that voters were being asked to say something substantial for once. But even here, the choices that were presented to the public were tiny. The debate became about what would happen to the NHS in an independent Scotland, or would Scots be £400 better off in an independent Scotland, or £400 worse off? Even this vote, 
Even this vote, which seemed to be big, was reduced to small, narrow, tiny differences over management issues, over the welfare state primarily, while the big questions of uh, nation and democracy were kind of shuffled off the stage. So why is there this frantic enfranchisement alongside the hollowing out of democracy? I think it's because democracy has become a self-preservation racket for the political class. We live under political oligarchies who look and act and behave like oligarchies, and they feel the need to fortify themselves with votes. So the democratic process is no longer about throwing open the future of the nation for us to decide on. It is about the elite trawling for crosses on pieces of paper to shore up their legitimacy. And they don't care where they get those crosses from. They don't care if they come from stupid teenagers who don't know their ass from their elbows. They don't care if they come from people in prison for rape and burglary. They don't care if they come from people walking around Asda who are being pressured to vote while they're there. They don't care where they get them from as long as they get them because they feel so alienated and so illegitimate that they need these votes uh, desperately. So I think the, the class's spread of the franchise really speaks to their isolation and their desperation, not to any serious democratic zeal. We really have to ask ourselves, what does the right to vote mean when there is so little to vote on? Does it have any meaning? If democracy has become a tool for propping up the oligarchy, uh, what does voting mean in that situation? And just finally, I think it's possible that it's even worse than I've just laid out. It's possible that not only uh, do uh, our leaders now use democracy to shore up their legitimacy, but also they, what they refer to as democracy is its very opposite. Because we now live under a political class which thinks its job is not to represent the public, but to reshape us, to reprimand us. They talk all the time about reshaping our attitudes, reshaping our lifestyles, policing our behaviour, changing how we act, what Labour calls the politics of behaviour. So we now live under a political class which thinks that democracy is about shaping the public around the prejudices of the political elite, which is 100% the opposite of what democracy is, which is the, re the shaping of the political sphere around the passions and feelings of the public. So we face a serious crisis of democracy at the moment. It's not a technical issue, it's not a problem of apathy, it's not even a problem of aloofness amongst the political class. It's a dearth of ideas and it's the warping of democracy by an elite that is increasingly oligarchical. Thank you, Brendan. Very thought-provoking. Um, all of those uh, stupid teenagers in the audience who don't know their arse and their elbow, that's what you call being brave. He's looking you in the eye and taking you on and not flattering the audience. I'm sure you'll come back. Um, but thank you. That was really interesting. Very useful concepts put on the table there. So thanks, Brendan. So, Chantal, your thoughts? Well, I agree with Brendan that uh, we are living a crisis of democracy. In fact, I think we should really fear for democracy. We are, according to some people, and I agree with them, already in what they call post-democracy. That is, societies who still claim to be democratic, but in fact, you know, the, the very essence of democracy it disappears. There are many reasons for that. Some, of course, are economic and the fact that it's basically market now who make the decision. But I'm going to concentrate on the more political reason. And, in fact, Brendan also referred to, to, to that too. And I think that there is a, a, a something that many of the protest movements were saying. They were claiming, we have a vote, but we don't have a voice. 
And I think that's exactly uh, the, the problem. You know, there is, in fact, a crisis of representative democracy, but it can be understood in different ways. And I think it's very important the way we, uh, we, we are going to you know, diagnostic the problem. Because for some uh, people, and that was clearly the, the case in many of those movements like Indignados, Occupy, they say the problem is representative democracy. They say that, in fact, representative democracy is an oxymoron. Think, you know, that, that don't go together. Uh, well, it's not a new idea. In fact, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was already saying the same, but it has become very popular recently. And those people say, no, what we need is, um, they go even to the point of saying that it's not really direct democracy because that's still too representative. We need uh, some kind of presentist democracy, democracy in actu, so assemblyism instead of parliamentarism. And of course, that means that you know, then the solution is to abandon all representative institutions. Well, I don't agree with that at all. In fact, I will argue, but I don't have time to do it here, that we can't envisage democracy without representation. You know, that, that does not make sense, a democracy without representation. The problem is not representation per se, but the way in which representation is taking place today and the fact that uh, so it's basically really existing representative democracy, I think, which is the problem. And here again, I will agree with what Brendan said, is the fact that, you know, because of the development, and, and in fact, Britain is in great part responsible for, for that, because the idea of the uh, consensus of the center developed by the uh, third way, and, you know, the radical center of Blair and, and uh, uh, Giddens and all those people, this is something which has really completely closed the, the, the way in which issue could be discussed. And uh, because they've been basically to, uh, today, there is no difference between center-right and center-left. Uh, they have accepted the center-left that there is no alternative to neoliberal globalization. Remember Thatcher with Tina? No, there is no alternative. And this has begun in, in Britain, then it moved to Germany with Schroeder, and then now it's basically accepted by all social democratic parties. So, which means that when people go for the, uh, to, to vote, yeah, but they don't really have a choice because it's a little bit more, you know, the social democratic parties are going to say, yeah, we are going to manage more humanely neoliberal globalization, but the people don't really have a voice because they don't have a choice. And I think that this is the real problem. So it, it is the fact that democracy is not representative enough. We need to give the possibility to people to have real choice. And I think that we should understand the uh, increasing and dangerous success of high-twing populist parties as a consequence of, of this, because they are the only ones who are saying there is an alternative. We are going to give the people the right to really uh, choose. And, uh, of course, their alternative is something that you know we cannot accept because uh, basic, well. Economically, I must say that it does not make sense, their, their, their solution, but also it's, it's unacceptable because basically it's based on the exclusion of the uh, immigrants, and so that, that is really a problem. But here what I'm going to argue, and that's probably going to be very controversial for some of you, is that the only way to fight against right-wing populism is to develop a form of left-wing populism. I think this is the way in which we can solve the problem of representative democracy. Uh, by left-wing populism, what I mean is something, you know, it's, it's not a, a new uh, uh, party on the 
same traditional type of uh, uh, practice. It's something which will be um, a creation of a real different kind of people. Because pop, here I want to argue that, in fact, I know that populism is something which is normally you know, seen as very negative, but we should reclaim populism because there is a necessary populist dimension in democracy. Democracy is about the constitution, the democratic, the power of the people. So it needs to construct the people. But the people can be constructed in many different ways. And that's the difference between right-wing populism and left-wing populism. Right-wing populism creates some kind of exclusion of the, the uh, immigrants. And right-wing populism is, for that reason, something that is not acceptable. Left-wing populism needs to, to construct a different people. And the different people, of course, is going to depend on the way we are going to construct the day that which the people is going to oppose. And in the case of left-wing populism, of course, it should be the, the uh, transnational corporation, the, the, uh, the, the banks, you know, all the, the pillars uh, of neoliberal globalization. So this, this is something which is very important. And I want to uh, add that this, of course, does not mean having a new traditional type of party, because right-wing populism is more traditional. A left-wing populism should be articulation between social movement and parties. Because I think that there is absolutely no possibility, contrary to what many of those protest movements believe, to transform society only on the basis of social movement. On the other side, we are not going to transform society and recreate a, a vibrant democracy only through traditional parties. So a right-wing populism will, of course, limit the possibility of people to participate, while a left-wing populism is going to be something that is articulating social movement with parties in order to construct a collective will which is going to really offer an alternative to neoliberal globalization. And I'm absolutely convinced that the only way to fight against right-wing populism is to develop a form of left-wing populism. Thank you very much. So a real call to arms there, and uh, I, I'm really looking forward to having that discussion and uh, seeing what people make of it. Um, but for now, um, Ivan, you tell us your thoughts. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. When I saw the question, should we fear democracy? We fear everything. Why we should not fear democracy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but secondly, what I do believe is quite important. It's not that we asking ourselves to fear democracy or not. The interesting story, in my view, if we talk about crisis, is that for different elites, for different reasons, both the elites and the people are disappointed with the current state of democracy. Elites don't believe that democracy helps them to govern anymore. Because before the elections have been producing mandate, somebody is voting for you and you expect basically for him to stay with you at least for a while. In a certain way, the relations between the political party in power and the voters have been like a Catholic marriage, at least for four years together. Now it's a one-night stand. <laughs> In a certain way, Mr. Lund was his majority before even entering the presidential palace, and this is a huge problem. But also what the government is starting to understand is that being elected and being claimed majority is not helping them because also as a result of this change and because of the absence of a political majority in society, because of the opinion polls that show how unpopular policies are and so on, those in opposition 
do not feel obliged to respect the results of the elections. Republicans in the United States, they tell the Democrats, listen, you're a minority, we're a minority, why one minority should respect the other one? We are not going to allow you to be treated like a majority. And from this point of view, you have this one fear, that democracy is not producing more governable society. And on the other side, you have the people who basically don't believe that democracy is allowing them to control their elites at all. I have been doing some research on the protest movements around the world, and here is just four very basic and simple things that uh, uh, at least I found quite interesting. Listen, for the last five years, more than you have a protest movements, mass protest movements in more than 70 countries in the world. And the first and very interesting thing is that if you look at that, you're not going to make a major difference between democratic and non-democratic countries. If you just try to see the political developments from the point of view of the protests, you're going to see that basically part of the claims, the demands, the behavior, this is kind of very much in the middle. Secondly, if you see how the protest movements are trying to position themselves, especially with respect to the elections, you're going to find something interesting. Uh, because most of these movements, you know all these leaderless, they're not organized by major political parties or trade unions, of course, different from country to country. But what was very interesting is that, and I'm just going to give you an example of four countries to imagine. One non-democratic, Russia. People on the street, they're asking the elections. They know that they're not going to win these elections if the elections are going to be there. Because for them it's not important to win the elections, but simply to make a point that there is an alternative to Mr. Putin. Then you have Turkey. Major protests. People asking for the resignation of the government. They don't ask for the elections. Because they know that if they're going to be elections, they're not going to win the elections. Which basically was very much demonstrated when the elections took place. You have Thailand, where Thailand middle class stayed on the streets asking for one major thing, no to elections. And then you have my own country, Bulgaria, where people have been on the streets for 400 days, 70% asking for elections, and 60% of them claiming that if there are going to be a new election, they're not going to vote on them. <laughs> no, but this is quite important because I do believe that something important is happening and when you try to see this type of mass protests, it's not simply against the representative institutions. This is against the very idea that you can be represented. For example, people have been walking on the street, in the case of Bulgaria, not allowing anybody to speak on behalf of them. And from this point of view, and this is going to be my last point, uh, this is the anti-political nature of some of these protests are coming very kind of strong to me. Uh, this is like the secessions during the ancient Rome, where when the plebs felt very unhappy, they live in the city, they go to one of the neighboring hills, they're staying there, they're making no demands, and they're expecting the senators to come and to convince them why they should come back. And I'm seeing this because in a certain way, I'm very much afraid that we talk about these choices and alternatives, but even some of the protest movements can be very easily become the instrument for legitimizing there is no alternative politics. Because in a certain way, people go on the streets to say, we are the people. But this is the only claim. We are the people and we don't know what we want anymore. Brilliant. Excellent. Um, I, I, I'm still thinking about left-wing populist movements over here, and now I've got all that buzzing around my head as well. So 
Uh, fantastic um, uh, insights there and very interesting provocations as well. So, David, want to round this up, please, with your thoughts? Sure. <laughs> okay, so I just want to take a broad view of this and try and contrast what I think we know about democracy and what I think we don't know. And the question is really, should we be more frightened of what we know or should we be more frightened of what we don't know? And this is a kind of historical view, both recent history and longer-term history. Some of the things that we do know, I think, is that democracy can make a bad situation worse. Societies that are divided, particularly ethnic or religious divisions, but not only those. Voting is often not part of the solution, it's part of the problem. Um, you've seen it in Iraq, in Egypt, perhaps in Ukraine. Um, I'm not saying in those societies democracy should be suppressed, but it's absolutely clear that certain kinds of social divisions aren't solved by giving people the vote, they're exacerbated. So that means we also know that a kind of naive Western faith in democracy is not a good idea if we think that democracy is going to be the solution to the problems that we face. And the last 10 years have shown the damage that that kind of naive faith can do. And I think uh, in the West a particular mistake was made that touched on some of the things that Brendan was saying at the beginning, which is that we mistake the appetite for democracy for a kind of aptitude or capacity for democracy to work. So one of the things that you often hear is that where there's high turnout, that's a sign that people really want democracy, so that's a good sign. It's often a bad sign. Turnout is very high in Iraq because people are terrified that if the other side win, their lives are at risk. Uh, turnout was very high in Weimar, Germany. That was a bad sign. It's a sign of how frightened people are. I actually think that some of the stuff about 85% of people voting in Scotland is a sign of the health of democracy in Scotland. It's, it, could be, it could mean anything. Um, and I did a debate in Scotland about this, and I made this kind of comparison. I said, of course, in this audience, you're not all going to vote because you're so terrified of what would happen if the other side wins. And they were. <laughs> that was what was driving it. That was a lot of what was driving it. When 85% of people vote, it doesn't follow that you're going to get the answers to your problems. It might mean that the answers to your problems are going to be harder to achieve because it's evidence of a divided society. I think we also know from all of this that democracies make lots of mistakes. Uh, and the last 10 years have shown that too. You get... We've heard some of this here, you get uh, knee-jerk politics, you get short-termist politics, you get pandering politics. My sense of the long history of democracy is that it shows that you can't have the good without the bad in democracy. For every democratic virtue, there's an equivalent vice. We want our democracies to be responsive. Responsiveness goes with pandering. We want our democracies to be flexible and adaptable, to change, to admit their mistakes. We want to be able to kick the bastards out. You get short-termism, you next get knee-jerk politics. I don't think there's any way of doing democracy where the good doesn't go along with the bad or the bad good. So there's plenty there to be anxious about. But actually, I think there's lots and lots of things that we don't know. And the things that we don't know relate to the fact that this crisis of democracy is happening in societies like ours, for which there is no historical analogy. Because we live in, by any historical standards, fantastically prosperous, fantastically peaceful, fantastically stable societies. We might not think this, it might not feel like that to us, but if you take a comparative historical view, we are amazingly well off. And that means I don't think we know what happens to societies like ours when democracy stops working. I think we know what happens in less stable, less peaceful, less prosperous societies when democracy stops working, which is you get violence, you sometimes get civil war, you get chaos, you get widespread protests on the streets and so on. But those aren't analogies for our societies. Even the analogies that we sometimes hear, so one that you hear a lot is that uh, democracy has survived worse than this. The 1930s is usually held up. A lot of the things that we've been hearing about today were played out in the 1930s. Left-wing populism, right-wing populism. Pandering, 
knee-jerk politics, fear about the decisiveness of dictators, what Claire was saying at the beginning. The Chinese can just get on with it and we're stuck with our slope. All of these arguments were played out in the 30s and the democracies survived those. So can't they survive this? Our societies are nothing like 1930s democracies. By our standards, those were very poor societies. Right? They were basically developing countries by our standards. Just look at comparative GDP. I think the bigger difference even than that is that we are really old societies and they were young. So just give you one comparison. In 1933, 5% of Americans were aged 65 or over. They were just a tiny, irrelevant minority in American politics. It's now 20% and rising. And as you all know, old people vote and young people don't vote. And it completely skews the perspective. The medium age in Greece, in Italy, in Japan is the late 40s, 45, 46, 47. These are old, dying societies. We do not know what happens to these kind of societies when democracy gets stuck. I'll just give you three things in particular I think we don't know, very briefly. One, we do not know what happens when growth, economic growth stops. Not that we go into some massive decline, but when we get stuck. The only analogy that we have is Japan for that. And I don't think our societies, Western democracies, Europe and the United States, are actually analogous to Japan. It's a different kind of democracy. We don't know. We do not know what happens when the new technology interacts with our democracy. I think the most striking feature of our world is that in the last 25 years we've had a technological revolution and politics hasn't changed at all. Not at all. It's a completely recognisable world from 1989 to now. In political terms, in technological terms, it's been completely transformed. That cannot go on. At some point, there will be a crisis of the new technology. It hasn't happened yet. And crisis is often what triggers democratic change. We have no idea what happens when a crisis of the new technology collides with our stuck, tired, old democracies. <clears throat> and finally, we do not know what happens when ecological damage and decay coincides with our democracies. Claire says there's a debate going on about Ebola. We're competing with Ebola to talk about this stuff. What actually happens to our democracies if this crisis becomes, gets close even to some of the worst-case scenarios and you just have to talk to doctors or biologists about how bad it could get? There are no historical analogies for that because we don't know what comfortable, prosperous, stable, rich societies do in these circumstances. Do they panic or do they cope? We just don't know. We have no idea. And I think the big gap in our thinking, as well as there being a gap in political ideas, you can read plenty of dystopias about our future. If anyone's read the new David Mitchell novel, it's got a fantastic dystopia at the end. 2043, not what happens when the oil runs out, what happens when the electricity runs out and the technology on which we depend stops working. Chaos. If you've read Cormac McCarthy's The Road, easy to come to worlds where cannibalism is going to be roaming the streets of London. It's also easy to come up with sort of semi-utopian futures of liquid democracy where the technology and the politics... The space in between, which I think is the real space, I don't think we're heading for dystopia, I don't think we're heading for utopia. The space in which we are stuck, trying to think about a future where our societies, stable, prosperous, secure, but stuck, try and engage with the kind of crises that we face that might trigger change. We have absolutely no historical space or analogies for thinking about that. We've got to think of our own way through that. I think all the historical analogies are false. All the comparisons are false. We're not Japan. We're not Weimar Germany. We're not 1930s America. We're us. And we have to find a way to think about what happens when the coming crises of technology, ecology, health coincide with these kinds of political societies. We haven't even started thinking about that. Thank you very much.
And you thought you were going to be cheered off. Right. Um, uh, very thought-provoking, David. Again, lots there. And I, I think, actually, very, very in the spirit of the battle of ideas, it's uh, important to understand what we don't know. Um, rather than people coming here looking for answers, but the, it's to identify the, the, the gaps in our knowledge and, and so on is very important. I'm just going to ask a couple of questions on, on, on both sides, just where people are sitting. Starting with you, Brendan, I, I, one thing I was thinking of when um, um, you were talking, Ivan, was uh, about the Scottish referendum. Naomi Klein went up to Scotland last week, uh, over from America, and proclaimed to the yes voters that they'd been robbed and that it, it was that they, they might have lost. It's but Naomi Wolf. And I, what did I say? Naomi Wolf. And what did I say? Oh, God, oh God, sorry. It's easy to mix them up. Yes. <laughs> I think Naomi that's right. No, I think it's right. I think we're no, about Naomi Wolf. We are. Um, um, but went up and said, sorry, yes, you're right. Um, went up and said, and, and it just really struck me that then I started reading these things and that basically the yes voters who lost basically just. Um, decided that doesn't count, it doesn't mean anything at all. And so I was just wondering, Brendan, just in, in that sense, um, on the one hand, you were talking about contempt um, by the political elite for the people, but there does seem to be a sort of popular contempt for the, anything that looks like a democratic outcome as well, which is people just go, well, I don't care about that. They, they, they're the wrong kind of politics anyway. So they, you know, they were all the no votes and they were bought off anyway. So, you know. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, th I really agree with Ivan that actually a lot of the um, modern left-wing protest groups are actually quite anti-democratic and, and propel the idea or boost the idea that there is no alternative. You could really see that in the Occupy movement um, at St. Paul's, which just expressed utter contempt for everyone who walked past it. They had all these placards saying, you're a member of the rat race, get out of the rat race, Capitalism makes you dumb. It was basically an assault on the public. That's what it was. They claimed to represent the 99%, but they had contempt for the 99% of the people who wore past. And I think that's reflected in the way in which some people are talking about the Scottish referendum result, that you know the, the Scots who voted against independence were brainwashed, they're stupid, they don't know what's good for them, all that kind of insulting commentary. And that's why I have a real problem with the idea of left-wing populism, actually, because... I mean, I think European politicians' fear of populism is really interesting because it expresses basically their fear of the public and the fear of the public making the wrong decisions in the voting booth. But I don't think a good response to that fear of populism is to call for other forms of populism. And I think, in fact, in the French presidential election in 2012, we saw the problem of having competing forms of populism because on one side you had people like Le Pen saying, you know, France has got these porous borders and our uh, culture is being undermined by foreigners. And then you had the left-winger, whose name I'm going to mispronounce, Mélenchon, who was saying that our borders are porous and we've been attacked by foreign markets and neoliberalism. It was basically the same argument, but the foreigner they were scared of, they were trying to whip up populist fear of, was different, foreigners or foreign markets. And so I think w what I'm saying is that I think I also disagree with David because I'm saying we need more democracy, much more democracy. But for me, democracy doesn't mean more ways to vote or more mechanisms for voting or more voting booths. It means more substance. So that doesn't mean uh, populism, which is an avoidance of substance in many ways. It doesn't mean the modern uh, radical movements who, who also avoid substance in favour of sloganeering against the public. It means rediscovering a sense of what politics is, is supposed to be about and offering that up for genuine public discussion and engagement. That's the thing I'm talking about. Okay, so I'll bring everyone in one more time before we go out. But... Um, Ivan, do you want to respond to that? Do you want to respond to that? But the other thing I wanted to just quickly ask you is about the, the, 
the, the technocratic impulse that's coming from the elite, say, in, in Europe. Because one of the things that does seem to me to have made people con contemptuous and cynical about democracy is when they do vote people in and then something like the EU says, yeah, well, we don't care whether you vote them, we're imposing this person who really knows how to run the economy. And basically saying, if you vote that way, we'll ignore you anyway. That, that elite disdain for the democratic process in the name of democracy has made popular disdain for democracy understandable, maybe, as well. No, no, totally. And it was said by Brandon in the beginning. If in, for example, 1848, you're going to have 10% of the people voting, but they're voting on the 100% of the issues. Now you have 100% of the people voting, but they're voting on the 10% of the issues because many of the major decisions are taken out of the democratic politics. For example, when you make the budget deficit constitutional issue, it's out of politics. But I do believe that this is just the beginning of something which is much more kind of dramatic on the uh, level of changing our very idea of what politics is, talking about technology. There is a, a company in the United States called Catalyst, and she works with big data. A uh, very progressive company, they come from the elections, now they're doing for anybody. You can go there and say, I'm interested to help poor kids in India. And they're going to give you two million addresses and contacts whom you should approach. Because the problem with the big data, and this is not opinion polling, is based on the fact that you don't need elections anymore to know where people stand. You know where people stand. You know their preferences. And what is extremely interesting, and for me, the politics was very much about trying to come with a consistent visions based on different issues. Now you have people being very passionate about different issues, but they're not trying to connect these issues. The problem is who's going to connect? Who is going to be the political? For example, from this point of view, it's interesting with the protest movements. Because protest movements are very successful when they go for something very concrete. For example, the prices of the tickets in Brazil, or stopping certain things. Or when they go on symbolic politics, the end of capitalism. Both of them are not political issues. Both of them. And from this point of view, strangely enough, the politics remains very much about people who are going to do politics with the big data. I know what is the majority of the people that is going to support, I don't know, certain type of policy with respect to stopping Ebola. I don't, I'm not interested to go to the elections to learn where do you stand. I'm much more going to manipulate and to mobilize this. And this is a different story. It's not simply that the elites now are going on regulations and so on, uh, but the democracy is starting to lose its otherwise very important kind of meaning as a source of information where do people stand. Nobody is interested where do people stand anymore. On one level, because you know where do people stand, but secondly, because you know how to change it. And from this point of view, nudging, uh, the idea that basically everything is about architecture of choices, that if I'm going to put your chocolate here and not here, this is going to reduce by 20%. The idea that you're going to get the chocolate instead of fresh fruit. This is a new idea. Before, politics was also an educational exercise. In a certain way, it was much closer to religion. You try to change the person. You want, basically, the people in the way they could be. Now the idea is I'm not changing anything. I'm trying to mobilize certain majorities which are going to help me to do what I want. And from this point, we were talking about a different type of technocracy, because this is a technocracy which knows very well where they can get support. Okay, very interesting. Um, Chantal, coming back on this left-wing populist point, um, which you were very passionate about, I think the appeal for me of what you said is because I find it 
annoying that the, um, the left sometimes in their anti-populist rhetoric end up talking about the people with a certain amount of disdain rather than the politics. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not as critical about populism as, as, as sometimes people are when they say, I'm scared about the rise of populism. And you think, well, if people are interested, you know. So I was interested in what you said, but Brendan has also just said, well, yeah, it's not quite as convincing. So do you just want to reflect back on some of the criticisms being made? Yeah, well, I think that the reaction of Brendan is typical of uh, a lack of understanding of different ways in which... Uh, populism can be understood because, of course, he accepts the traditional, you know, negative view of populism and says, oh, but, but that's going to be done by the left. Well, I try to insist that it's not at all the same thing. And, for instance, what I under... To give you an idea, for me, the example today of a left-wing populist movement is Syriza in Greece. This is exactly what I understand by a left-wing populist movement, because it is a, a, a movement, the parties working with a, a, a social movement, and which really they want to come to power, they are going to take part in the election, and apparently you know, there is a good chance that the next government in, uh, in Greece is going to be led by Syriza. And basically the importance of Syriza is that they are offering an alternative to neoliberal globalization. They want to come to power in order to really change the, 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 and attack neoliberal hegemony. Uh, this, this thing that Brendan said, that there is no substance in, in left-wing populism, I mean, I really don't see that at all. Um, there is a lot of substance in what Syriza is doing, and there is a lot of substance in uh, the kind of left-wing populism that I propose, and the substance came precisely from the fact that they are making proposals which are a real alternative. Because the, the crisis of representative democracy uh, today, and in fact, I want to make clear that I was basically speaking of our societies. I'm, I'm, I, I, I agree with a lot of things that de David said about, you know, the Iraq, and, but that was not my problem. It's we are today in uh, our uh, liberal democratic societies in a crisis of representative democracy. And that is the reason for the rise of right-wing populism. And how are we going to fight against that? And so what I'm saying, well, by developing a, a left-wing populism, which is going to propose a different alternative to give substance again to a left-wing project. You know, so it is not at all something without substance. It is a, a movement which is an articulation, and I insist very much on that, with social movement, because I agree here we seem to all to be very critical of the, the anti-political nature of the protest movement. I agree very much with what Ivan uh, uh, said about that. Uh, and this is why I insist that those movements need to be articulated with parties in order to have a real uh, project, or to organize society, to not just simply you know, re uh, say, no, we don't want this, this, this. no, but to, to really politicize those movements. And this is what I understand by your left-wing populism. Okay, thanks. Um, David, you can pick, pick up anything. I thought um, that you want, okay, want obviously, sure. obviously. But um, the, I thought your, your point about the majority of people, you know, it doesn't matter what the turnout is, it doesn't necessarily lead to the health, it doesn't necessarily reflect, it, or it's very uh, uh, interesting. One of the things that I found, and it reflects back on something I've, uh, Ivan just said about Nudge, is, is that one of the things that seems to me to be completely lost in the discussion about democracy is the concept of persuading anyone of anything. Um, so so the, the, it's like people are fixed, you know, they're over there, and you can kind of mobilise them or nudge them. But the, but the concept of 
I mean, you were talking about all these kind of future things and what the challenge is. But one of the things which I just think has to be a core component of anything, which is a bit ahistoric, is to just say, here is an idea and it's my responsibility to convince you it's a better idea than the one you've got. And you can change your mind. And I can change my mind. Because people see everyone in a fixed thing or try and manipulate mm. them or not have an argument. Surely that's not going to be changed by everything that you said. That's still something we could say is very core to democracy. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying it's all going to change, and I'm not saying that... I'm trying to say that these dystopian visions are completely fake for us. I think we've got to think about the real space where this stuff happens. But related to that, um, the challenge is always, how do we stop more democracy from exacerbating the divisions rather than bridging them? Um, and that's always a risk. It's no, by no means inevitable. Democracy can be part of the solution or it can be part of the problem, and we have to judge that. But as Ivan said, in, in, in a world where technology is producing all sorts of new kinds of responsiveness, but also new kinds of pandering, the challenge is to find the political space that connects up all of these different views of the world and different experiences of the world. And throughout the history of democracy, the institution that has done that is the political party. There is no, we have no historical experience of democracy without the glue being political parties. And yet political parties are one of the institutions that are being hollowed out by this new technology. How many people in this room belong to a political party? Okay, it's not a lot. You can't see, but it's not a lot. Um, and this, this would be different 30, 40, 50 years ago. There are new parties arising, but they tend to be the populist parties. And that future landscape, if we're looking at a post-party democracy, we genuinely we haven't even started thinking about what that might look like. If we're not, and we're thinking about new kinds of parties, parties are the classic democratic institution. You cannot have the good without the bad. I mean, there isn't some nice, new, shiny form of political party which is responsive and technically adept and open to the people and not also elitist and oligarchic and so on. I mean, these are... So we have to grapple with that. And then the, my other feeling about this is that we do also have sufficient, I now think, 100-year worth experience of democracy to know that when democracies get stuck, it's external shocks that tend to trigger movement. It's really hard from inside a democracy that's stuck to find the solutions to generate more democracy so that we work our way out. It tends to be external shocks, external threats, whether it's economic or to do with movements of global power and so on. And again, we have to think seriously. I'm not, this is not scaremongering. I'm not saying we're going we to wait for war with China and that will get us all moving. You know, that's not, that's not the way to think about politics. But even in relation to the technology, we have to think about the fact that we're really going to struggle to find a way out of this without being alive to the ways in which m movements in the technology itself. So if you ask me what's the crisis that might trigger some movement, there could be a a kind of currency crisis. There could be a crisis that relates to the possibility that technology opens up for new kinds of currency or new kinds of monetary exchange. It could be good, it could be bad, it could be frightening, it could be open up new, new ideas. But it's more likely to be something like that than just more democracy internally bridging our divisions and allowing us to see a collective future. I think it's going to be an external shock. Okay, thank you very much. Really excellent contributions from here. Now let's open it up. So uh, the first person I saw is that gentleman. I've, I, I've then got a couple of people here, and then there, and then I'll, I'll move across. But yes. Thanks for a, a fascinating set of instructions. Um, I, the last point we just heard about the good, getting good without bad is really important, because the discussion on populism is a classic example of having good with a lot of bad. So on populist right, you have crass, generalizations about immigration. On the populist left, you have crass generalizations about large corporations. 
Yeah, and, and for most thinking people, you want to be able to be able to sort of pick and choose the policies you like on relative areas of, of political life. I'm wondering if the answer is to have multiple different parliaments and elections. You have an economic parliament, you have a social parliament, maybe a technical one, or in some countries even a religious parliament, where you can actually maybe not vote on individual issues, but at least segment away from this traditional left-right single-dimension politics. Uh, thank you very much. Without the kind of technical, I don't want everyone, it's not like think tank, what's your best way of organising? But no, but that was really useful in as much as I think it sums up what people say. They just say, what there is on offer isn't what I want, and I want to be able to have a bit of that and a bit of that, and with more substance. And I think that is the way people feel about political parties. They don't, it doesn't work the way it is. Um, but yes, um, the gentleman with the white hair, if you don't mind saying, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Um, two quick points. Uh, not left-wing populism, uh, but what happened in the 60s. People are forgetting that the biggest growth of pressure groups and charities happened with the disillusionment, with Harold Wilson and his surgeon. And they were issue-oriented, and huge numbers of young people moved into them. Shelter for the homeless, uh, lots of disability groups, and um, child poverty action groups, which interestingly, uh, it has just this rediscovered poverty uh, in, in the UK by two LSE professors. So they drew up an agenda and didn't open the bank account because they thought, well, we'll go and show this to Harold Wilson and we'll get it in. And we know what happened since. So not left-wing populism, but let's strengthen those civic society pressure groups which are doing serious work. Secondly, on the side, Democracy began, as you all know, in Athens, and that had a population of 12,000 people. There's been long-term debates on what is the actual size that works, which then takes me to my final point about local authorities. There have been 12, there been 12 restructuring of the local authorities in 120 years, and every one of those restructurings made them bigger. Until now, we have only really a thousand serious ones, and if you add you had all the parish councils, you've only got 2,000. In France, there are 30,000 local authorities. And in Italy, it's something like that. And their turnout is huge. Um, they have more people turning out for local elections in Italy than they do for the national elections. So again, that comes a bit to size. If you get a smaller union, unit, you may get more engagement. Okay, thank you. And the person sitting next to you. Um, this is, we've got a liberal project, um, democracy, with more developing countries, or even um, our, our society, where if you haven't got education and you've got a corrupt government which pays people to vote for them, or even if you've got speakers that sound very persuasive, but the public doesn't actually comprehend what they're saying and what their ideas are, then is democracy really the best way to go? You know, in terms of like, which we discussed about the EU and the economy, deciding that we're going to not elect a person to take care of the monetary and, um, and generally the economy. So is it better that way or to use an election? Okay, I just wanted to back up the uh, speaker behind me as a somewhat disillusioned Scottish voter in the recent referendum. Uh, the fact that there was really no vehicle to harvest some of the uh, gems that came out of the extensive debate uh, preceding the referendum. Uh, 
and the voters being uh, left with a vacuum of really tangible uh, ideas to be able to vote on, and the absence of a vehicle to be able to harvest some of the ideas that just got left in the furrows and were able to be brought forward into a, a voting platform. Thank you very much. I'm actually a teacher, and the thing that I teach is, is absolutely emergent democracy in Athens in the 5th century. And what I'm interested in is that that was direct democracy, where all the population, the male population over 18 plus, were given a chance to take part and was educated. And in fact, anybody who didn't take part was considered to be an idiot. And leading on from that, Plato then went on to fear democracy and felt that actually we should have technocrats, people who, who, who knew what they were doing. What I'm really interested in is that in the 21st century, we've got a new version of direct democracy, which is through the digital technology, which could be exciting. But I am concerned about this need for immediate gratification. So I feel as a teacher, shouldn't we be providing political education within schools so that we can use this digital technology and this direct democracy in a much better way? We worry about literacy, we worry about returning to history. But once upon a time, as a teacher, I wouldn't have been allowed to address political issues. I've come here with a large number of students, both yesterday and today. The students are interested. I, I know you didn't mean that, literally. I have one of my 16-year-olds sitting here next to me. You'll find me later. Um, but it shows that there isn't a lack of interest. But I think that we need to be educating our young people, and then they can deal with it better. OK, th thank you. Um, do you want to just quickly pick up anything? David, it has to be quite quick now. But, uh. Okay, very quickly. Um, I think it's fascinating to compare our democracies with Athens and so on. I don't want to kind of throw a bucket of cold water over it, but I just think that none of the analogies hold up. It's not just that these were smaller societies. They're just completely different. And Athenian democracy only works because of a kind of sort of social structure and intervention to hold the thing together we couldn't conceive of. And we have to remember, in the long run, it didn't work as well. Like Athenian democracy lasted 200 years. We're 100 years into our cycle. 100 years into Athenian democracy, it looked in good shape. 200 years in, it was dead. Uh, we're 100 years into ours, and the world is moving a lot quicker now than it was then. 100 years into the future, it's almost unimaginable. So I'm not trying to... I mean, of course, that, but like, our range of resources for thinking about our political possibilities are slightly hamstrung by the fact we keep falling back on these historical examples that actually aren't going to tell us anything about how our democracies work. Two other very quick things quick. on the Italy, France, very high turnout in local elections. That seems to me a classic example of where high turnout is not a good indicator necessarily of the health of the democracy. <laughs> and finally, Claire, you said it, trying to sum up the point about different parliaments. You said, I wrote you down, you said, what we want is a bit of this and a bit of that with more substance, right? That is a contradictory desire. A bit of this and a bit of that militates against more substance. More substance is about pulling politics together. That's the central tension. If that's what we want, we want something we're not going to get. Uh, You'll be glad to know that I no, agree I with that. Um, yes, no, no. Uh, Chantal. Yeah, no, I just want to, to challenge the myth, which of course is absolutely exact, that democracy was born in Athens. 
the, the word democracy was born in Athens, but uh, democratic practices have existed in many other uh, societies and well before the Athens, because I think this, this danger, you know, say, oh, it was born in Athens. So we in, 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 in the West, we've got this privilege, you know, democracy with a, and this, this of course has, has got a lot of very negative consequences because we think that our model is superior and we've got to export it and that, that's fantastically dangerous. But democracy was not born in Athens, the word democracy yet, but the practice of democracy if, that is, you know, the way of taking a decision in which everybody can participate. This is something which has existed in many different ways, in many different societies, and well before 5th century Athens. Uh, thank you very much. Um, yeah. I'm absolutely fine for 16 years old voting. I have a 13-year-old daughter. My only please don't go under 16, because then probably it's not going to destroy democracy, but it's going to destroy the family. But my second comment, and this is very much about political participation in idiots. If in ancient Greece they did, the idiots were the ones who were not participating. Now many people start, especially in my part of the world, to see idiots, those who are interested in politics. Uh, and I'm saying this because uh, there is something that also was coming from David. There are two occasions in which democracy does not work well. When the stakes are too high or too low. When the stakes are too high, if really the problem of voting is the problem of who is going to get the resources and to be alive, better take a bullet. And if they are too low, why to motivate people to vote? If there is no change of nevertheless who comes to power, what it means to be represented. And I do believe as a result of it we come with something very interesting. And this is, I do believe, what European elites are starting to get. When you're telling the people there is no alternative to the current economic policy, by the way, nevertheless what this policy is, people are always going to find an alternative. For example, in Catalonia they said, if there is no economic alternative, then independent Catalonia is the alternative. And from this point of view, I do believe that democracy came as the rejection of the idea of no alternative politics. And unfortunately, and this has something to do with what you said about other countries, what I can see in places like China, for example, and Europe, there are two different types of non-alternative politics. In China, there is no alternative to the government of the Communist Party. They are much more flexible changing politics. You cannot change those in power. In our countries, you can change government as much as you want. You cannot change policies much. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, um, I always, I must say, I always feel uncomfortable when people say we need more education in order to improve democracy because that's a slightly dodgy argument. I mean, the argument made against the suffragettes, for example, was that women were insufficiently educated for taking part in democracy. Uh, they lacked expertise. You know, that's what people said about them. The argument made against um, Black voting in America in the 1940s and 50s and 60s was that they were insufficiently educated, they didn't know enough in order to take part in politics in an adult fashion. And one of the key problems today, I think, is, is the outsourcing of politics to experts, the outsourcing of politics to people who are better educated and cleverer than us lot. That's one of the key problems we face today in the democratic sphere. You know, drugs policy, economic policy, industrial policy, climate policy, governments surround themselves with technocrats and experts who give them advice on what to do, and then they basically just do it. And we get to vote on the, on the much more minor stuff. So I'm worried about the invasion of the political sphere by an expert educated class, and the idea that you need a certain level of education to take part in democracy. That's a worrying argument for me, particularly in relation to third world developing countries. You know, we had 
Baroness Ashton go to Egypt and basically say, you're not really ready for democracy because you don't have the right institutions, you don't have the right mindset. Baroness Ashton, who is the high representative of foreign policy in the European Union, but has never been elected by anyone, is basically a modern-day dictator, going to Egypt and telling them how they should do democracy. I mean, you couldn't make it up. I think even, even, yes, even people in the developing world who don't read much and might not have a high level of education and might not do A-levels are capable of choosing their leaders and determining their destiny. Um, thanks very much. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, start with you because you, you've been very patient. I, I just wanted to throw something out, which is um, just in terms of a confusion about what democracy is, but it kind of relates to the new technologies point, really. Because it seems to me that actually, particularly in the West, people are, are very keen on the, the kind of democratising everything, even sometimes when it's not appropriate. So, for example, you know, when there was an argument that I was involved in the other day about uh, who should decide on the school and university curriculum, and I suggested it should be the teachers, not the students, they were sort of saying that's so anti-democratic. And uh, I say, no, it's a very sensible policy, so I don't want the pupils deciding what they want to do at school. And, and then it's kind of like huffing and puffing, oh, you know, you dictator. Um, and I don't think that wasn't the kids, that was the teachers. I mean, it, it was the teachers who were arguing that the people, you know. And then there's also crowdsourcing in relation to um, uh, publishing that's going on. And I think this actually pertains to what you were saying, about that's not a politics, you know, a bit of this, a bit of that. I mean, the thing that drives me mad about the crowdsourcing and publishing, yeah, lots of people want this book to be published, it should be. And then you think, well, you know, whatever happened to judgment, discernment, people who might know something about... You say that and everyone says, oh, I thought you were a Democrat. No, not on everything. So everybody wants democracy everywhere, but we don't seem to know what it is when it comes to the political process. There's a very peculiar dichotomy that's going on. Um, so we're starting with that gentleman, then we're going to go to that gentleman there. Well, addressing on what Brendan was saying, um, there's a guy called Keith Lund, who's my own book, he's an academic, wrote a book called The Party's Over. His suggestion was we get rid of the House of Commons and the House of Lords. We have one House full of appointed experts, okay, how do you appoint them typically? Then you get glorified massive uh, jury service type idea where you get uh, members of the public in. They actually beat the debate of the experts, then they actually made a decision. One point. Quickly coming back to what Shantel said about populism. Well, the problem is about inclusion, but the part of Britain that is genuinely trying to be inclusive actually UK. If you want a left-wing populist party, look at anti-globalisation and other left-wing politics. Actually, that is the BNP. Hello, I'm I'm 16 years old, and I'd just like to <laughs> say a few things here. Um, um, as a person that is very much um, involved in politics and is very fascinated with it, I think it's very dangerous to disregard young people in such an um, overreaching, stereotypical way. I think many of the arguments opposed to votes for 16 and 17 were the same arguments that were used against women in suffragette movements. The fact that they didn't pay taxes, uh, the fact that they didn't know about politics, or the fact that it wasn't their place. I think these outdated ideas are what disenfranchise young people. And at the end of the day, we grow up to be the next, you know, the next general public. And if our ideas are well suited, and if we're constantly being batted away, saying we're not intelligent enough, or we're not it's not our place, it will create for a very dangerous society. And I think that although the, the teacher over here said that this, this young person will fight you, no, I think if you go to the U United Kingdom Youth Parliament, which is a society that exists, and you have a debate with 16 and 17 year olds, you will have a very, very positive outlook 
what the future is, and you will, I think, stop dismissing young people. Um, I can't tell you how much I disagree with you, um, uh, but it's very hard to, point, point well made. Uh, however, I, I think it's inappropriate to uh, uh, congratulate people for being 16 and 17. We all went through it, it doesn't last. Uh, you deserve to be taken seriously when you have something interesting and uh, useful to say. I don't mean you, that was interesting, I'm just making the point. Age cannot be the guarantee of you respect us, we're young, we're the future. Um, unless I've misunderstood, I think both Professors Krasjev and uh, Runson seem to be saying that democracy only works when there's no turmoil, if I understood your point. So you said I think there was too much at stake, you said it wouldn't work, and you said that the Weimar Republic, for example, is an example of where democracy is working. It seems to be the total opposite is true. Surely democracy is all about turmoil because it's about who rules, who's in power. Um, and the greatest periods of uh, turmoil that created democracies were the American Revolution, the French Revolution. So civil war, it seems to me, is always part of democracy, if not always part of democracy. It's certainly part of its birth. And so we shouldn't be worried if, uh, for example, the so-called populist movements in, uh, in the uh, Middle East create that kind of turmoil, create those kinds of conflict, because they're all to be expected in a democracy, or at least in the, at the birth of a democracy. Uh, and it sounds to be more like, certainly you, uh, is more interested in democracy as people management, not people taking power. Yes, you. Brandon talked about making a, a more um, representative and more substance in the in the government, but the way to do that is to make isn't it to make it more representative and like by ruling out children or like even young adults and then ruling out prisoners as well who are part of the population, isn't making it less representative, giving less substance. And all of the government is mostly just white middle aged men. Whereas we need more we need more women, we need more ways to get people's ideas out instead of just the same ideas to the same technocrats that say the exact same things over again. So more subjects will come to more representation. And I think that will come through young adults and women taking more, more access. Okay, thank you very much. I'd like to offer an observation here on this question of the origins of this crisis of representative democracy. Speaking as someone who's kind of sat on both sides of the fence. So I've run public office, I've run election campaigns, and now I also teach people how to um, engage in politics specifically through the art of debate. And, and one of the questions I want to pose to you is that take a moment to think about how rare an event like this is. What I mean by that is that a lot of public engagement efforts seem to focus on getting people to, to vote, for example, or to know the law. There is very little both in the public domain and also in the political domain, of just providing a platform for people to contribute. And I like to offer you a little comparison here between the UK and the developing world, where I also work, that kind of illustrates this. Over here, I, I was working for the National Citizen Service earlier this year. Um, in the awards ceremony, an MP who was visiting asked young people gathered there, 16, 17, how many of you want to be an MP when you grow up? One hand went up after about 40 or 50 people. Last year, I was talking to Miranda. There, 16, 17 year olds I'm working with are chomping at the bit, openly stating their ambitions to be president of the next, next president of their country, to be lawmakers, be people driving the way forward. The difference being that there, 
They are able to exercise their views through a platform that's provided for them to engage in debate on issues every week. Over here, I see nothing to parallel that. I think perhaps that is where the origin of this class lies. No platform to discuss the issues and debate, excuse me, and debate them as opposed to just not people voting. Yeah, can I just pursue this 16-year-old voting thing uh, a little bit? I live in Scotland, so uh, I've been dealing with this for the last few years. Interestingly, my 18-year-old students generally say it would be ridiculous to give 16-year-old students because they look back at themselves when they were 16 and know that they didn't have a clue. So I'd be interested to know what the rest of the panel think. I was a bit disappointed because Ivan I thought was brilliant so far, and he says fine for 16-year-olds, but I think Claire's point is well made in terms of part of where this has come from, because if this panel was sitting here five, six, seven years ago, no one would have mentioned 16-year-olds voting. And now, any enlightened right-thinking person will say 16-year-olds get the vote. So it's come, it's come from nothing, based on nothing, and yet everyone now thinks that this is uh, somehow a progressive thing. And essentially, we're talking about people who, 16, still live at home, just in school, most, most of them, no job, no experience, etc., etc. It seems to me a real loss of adult confidence that we've just collapsed and think that 16-year-olds should have the vote. Okay, thank you very much. My questions are to uh, Brendan. Uh, it'd be useful for me to understand who you think creates substance in politics. There seems to be a division around looking at the leaders and the people. But also, if you could explain what that substance might be, be that you're imagining uh, that we should aspire to. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, David, I admire your spirit of questioning democracy, and obviously Claire was as well in saying that democracy applies to everything at all times. But I think you're going further than that, in that you're uh, sort of succumbing to the spirit of our time, the fearful outlook, uh, you know, the worry of, of democracy too much, uh, the worry that uh, we can't change anything within, that we have to wait for some shock, or that's how it will happen from the outside. Surely the only way we can change democracy here and now in our country and in the world is not to succumb to the spirit of the times. Now, if you look at the great changes, they actually have come from philosophers like J.S. Mill developing the idea of individual rights. That kind of philosophy taken up by actual campaigners arguing for rights for all and, and for women, uh, etc. So surely that's what we need, not succumbing, I think you do, too much to the spirit of the times. Okay, back to the 16-year-old, I'm afraid. Um, I don't actually have a stake in this debate. But to ask the vote, I would suggest, is actually to exhibit some capability to wield it. In a sense, that's the definition of enfranchisement. You ask for it, you want it. But I read an article in Times Higher, I think about two weeks ago, that was a metadata study of all the studies of 16-year-old decision-making. And what it suggested was that 16-year-olds are immature regarding what we would call hot decisions, whether to accept that drug, whether to stick those grapes on when you're skinny. On those decisions, 16-year-olds tend to make poor decisions not comparable to those of adults. But that when they looked at the decisions 16-year-olds made on cold decisions, weighing evidence, looking at what to vote for, how to spend money, there was no discernible dis difference between the decisions 16-year-olds made and those that 25-year-olds made, and that there was a difference between 60-year-olds, as we discussed. So that actually, if we want to disenfranchise 16-year-olds, we need better arguments than that. But also, I'd actually point out why worry about this. If we enfranchise 16-year-olds, the pattern we know is that young people vote less. 
Okay, thank you very much. So, Chantal, pick up anything that you want from that. Um. Yeah, well, no, what I want to say is that I think that, uh, listening to, to the intervention, people don't seem to realize that there is a real problem. I mean, I'm, I'm really pessimistic and I don't want to be alarmistic, but I mean, there is a real crisis of representative democracy. We are seeing that in uh, abstention, which is growing, the growth of right-wing populist parties, and, and things are really in, it, at a crucial moment. The, the, those the protest movements are, in fact, I don't think they are at all the solution, but I think they are a symptom. They are indicating that there is a rejection of the actual. And this, this can really have very, very negative consequences. So we must be uh, aware of that problem. We need to find ways in which we are going to make those uh, societies and those democracies more representative. And in fact, my proposal for left-wing populism is precisely to say that that's the way in, in which we can mobilize people again. Because one of the reasons I feel, and that here I'm speaking of a, a political theorist, I've been very much concerned by the fact that most democratic political theory and parties, they are afraid of the affective dimension of politics. You know, what I've called the passion. I think what pe move people to act politically are uh, the, 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 uh, what I call passion and the affective dimension. And in fact, the, all the, the uh, left-wing parties uh, of, of the center-left, they, they don't want to hear that. They think it's just a question of giving arguments, and that's the danger, because if you don't act on this affective dimension, you leave it open to right-wing populist parties to mobilize people, to make, form of, they make them identify with, with the project. And this is why I think I insist on left-wing populism is precisely to take seriously this affective dimension of politics and to orientate that into another di direction. And this is the way in which we could, well, one of the ways in which we can fight against the crisis of representative democracy. Okay. Uh, thank you. Now, we're going to give you all one last bite after this, so don't make it your final thing, but David? Okay, well, just the two that were a direct challenge to me, turmoil and fatalism. It's easy to say you're for people power and people management. Democracy is always a mix of both. That's, that's the false choice. What I hate is the idea that somehow there's a level of turmoil that goes along with democratic change, which we can happily wish on other people. Well, I think Ivan's saying what I'm saying is that too little turmoil doesn't work. Too much turmoil is too much turmoil to live through. I don't think we should wish it on anyone. Yeah, a European civil war would certainly get us through this crisis, and we would emerge with something that looks very different and possibly more democratic. I don't want to wish it on anyone. Um, but I don't want to sound like the pessimist here. Someone said something about the 1960s. I like David Graeber has a good account of how political change works, which is the 1960s revolutions look like they achieved nothing. Actually, we live in a world which was a creation of those revolutions. A lot of the changes that we live through, particularly not the political, but the social changes, um, are a result of those revolutions. The thing that gives me pause, John Stuart Mill, the 1960s, Athens, whatever, 40 years ahead, it may be that the Occupy may play out over 40 years. The 1848 revolutions, they took 70 years. We live in a world, unlike I think in 1848 or even in 1960, where 40 years ahead is almost unimaginable for us. Our world is changing much quicker. If we, if we have to wait 40 years for this thing to play itself out, that's too long. I'm not a fatalist. I just think that we have to be realistic about the ways in which this challenge is different. The First World War created modern democracy. 
we don't want another one of those. We have to think about the space that's available for us for making change. Okay, Brendan, anything you want to pick up? Uh, on the 16-year-olds, um, I think, you know, the reason the Charter said that, thought that prisoners shouldn't have the right to vote is because prisoners are not part of society. They're not in, they are not in society. They are temporarily removed from society and they are dependent on others for their survival. And the same can be said in a different way about 16-year-olds. The vast majority of 16-year-olds are dependent. They are not independent people. They are not uh, in society in terms of working and contributing. And therefore it makes little sense for them to have a say on how society is run because they are not independent, autonomous beings. Also, on top of that, a lot of 16-year-olds and young people are politically immature. I mean, you know, it's not surprising in George Orwell's 1984, it's not surprising that the, the real tyrants in that are the young people and the teenagers, the, eco, the, the child spies, um, because young people tend to have a very black and white moralistic view of the world through a lack of experience. And, you know, that's, that it's for those reasons that I would not be in favour of expanding the franchise to 16-year-olds. Also, I do think it smacks of adult cowardice, this, this desire to hide behind children. I remember when there were huge protests of um, 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds against David Cameron's um, student tuition fees and various other things. And you had this utterly tragic situation where mums and dads were driving their kids to these protests with packed lunches, <laughs> dropping them off, going home, and then the whole media was saying, wow, this is so wonderful, these young people rising up against the government. It was basically adults trying to recapture their political views through these young people. It was so desperate and sad. Uh, finally, just quickly on David's point, I think the government, I think Occupy's demands have already been embraced. I don't think it's going to take 40 years. I think they were already part of the mainstream even before those um, people started sleeping in that same pool, which is anti-growth, slow growth, anti-progress, anti-industry, a contempt for the masses, a contempt for progress, a contempt for wealth and development. All those ideas occupied were basically just a purple-haired radical version of a mainstream idea. Those ideas are key, and it's those ideas, I think, that really need to be shaken up by whatever form of new democracy can Very quickly, especially on the problem of the high stakes. Uh, in 1848, there was a very famous gravure, which uh, Piero Zavalloni is using a lot with uh, the French worker, with a rifle in one hand and the ballot in the other. And basically, this was where democracy comes from. The idea was ballots for the class enemy and rifle for the national enemy. Uh, but the, this idea that we should go through the civil war in order to have a democracy is good if you're not living there. <laughs> uh, because basically telling, for example, people in Syria that this is the way, uh, civil war are very much destroying the idea of the political community, and this is what I find problematic. And on the 16-year-old, the interesting story is, this is why, for example, I'm uh, uh, kind of slightly cynical to all this. Listen, if we trust all these projections, Around 30 to 40 percent of the jobs that are performed today are going to be absent in 20 or 30 years. So, in a certain way, you're giving the 16s the right to vote, saying, "Listen, you're going to work as a voter." Uh, from this point of view, the very idea of empowerment should be taken slightly more seriously because it goes very symbolic. You're going to you're giving people things that probably they don't need so much. I don't have anything against this, and on the level of the experience, it very much depends 16 years where, to be honestly speaking. Talking about uh, that they don't have a life experience, in some of the countries in which kids are working since they're 13 years old, and basically they have an experience which we're never going to get, it's totally different. Uh, but, but my basic idea is you cannot, sorry, but for me, you cannot try to believe that sitting giving right, you're giving power. 
the power of the citizen was coming not simply from the power to vote, but from the fact that he was a worker, he was a soldier, as a result of it, his presence in the society matters. If you only have the right to vote and any other social powers, I do believe your power is going to be very limited. Yes. Yeah, hello. Um, coming back to the left-wing thing that we were talking about, um, in Spain, left-wing populism is becoming a really big force. And it's true that this party came out um, last year. And it was something um, before that we felt, in Spain, we felt very, very frustrating because of the lack of substance that we were talking about. We felt that we were not represent, you know, represented. And, um, it's true that left-wing populism became, became a really good alternative because you were thinking, well, at least these people are really looking for, you know, to people's problems, and they really, you know, and it's true, and it becomes really, not, a really, but I think that it can be also very dangerous because um, if you go, I know South America is not Europe, but in South America we find left-wing populism all the time, and what it has become, and left left-wing populism back in the time in South America was also, I mean, it became a really important change, and you know, yeah, and so, 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 so basically, I think that we populism leads people to to believe blindly in something as well, you know, and and we want people be be able to, to trust in reason, not just in, in following someone. Thank you. That was very useful. I'm sorry to be trying to close people down. You can just see I'm running out of time. I don't find this idea from David Runciman that things are moving too quickly and you can't possibly look ahead and predict what's happening politically or because of technology. Uh, 25 years ago, the Berlin Wall, the Berlin Wall fell. And politics has remained pretty much the same since. Mm. It's very managerial, it's about politics of behaviour. So I don't see any great changes coming unless there is this change in substance that Brendan's talking about. Okay, thank you. So that gentleman with the blue shirt, pass it. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to uh, come back to the right-wing populism point. We heard uh, Stephen Wolf uh, yesterday uh, from UKIP, who uh, was a really good example of that right-wing populism because the line he gave us on migration was that UKIP aren't going to close the doors, they're going to manage migration in a better way. But uh, <coughs> if that's the line, you better tell both of that in Blackburn because as far as they're concerned, if you wait for to get new power, then that's exactly what's going to happen. So he's giving us one story, but you can telling different stories to different audiences. But they're getting a free ride in the press, whereas left-wing populism won't get that free ride from the popular press. All I would say is that in 1867, when a bunch of poorly educated and inexperienced working-class men got the vote, it suddenly gave real substance to politics. It really shook up the political party system, it changed the Liberal Party, it went on to create the Labour Party, and massive social welfare um, began at that point, um, public health reforms, etc. Um, and so I feel as though um, that we've got to think about that. I think young people today can really put substance back into our political system because it is their future that they will consider and that they are thinking about. And I work with young people. The 16-year-old today didn't come out of Scotland. It's been going on for many, many years. In fact. Um, I've been planning it with my school pupils for at least the last 15 years. Um, so I don't think it's something from nowhere. I also think our problem of young people not voting will be totally turned around if we can engage people at the age of 16 to even be thinking about the fact that they might be voting in the next two, three, five years' time. 
um, at, uh, while they're still at school and while they're still talking to their parents and other people, not to indoctrinate them, but to give them the thoughts and the choices so that when they do get a chance to vote, they actually use it. Um, mine as well educating them because you said about the when women try to get the vote, they weren't educated in black people. They weren't educated in sense of this kind of education, but they were still aware of the problem, which I think the problem now is I've just been 18 and really excited to vote. But all my friends are voting just oh I'm gonna vote just because they can vote, but people are so desperate to have a say but they don't know what they're trying to say. Like my friend wanted to vote for Boris Johnson purely because he has nice hair. And we just find that's not a good reason to vote. And without education, you don't know what you're voting for. Like Kate said that, and we just vote for the best people, the person who sort of like most, not the best politics, which I think is where the problem is, not the age, the lack of education. Um, just, just before I ask the speakers uh, to, to finally sum up, I, it's just something I wanted to say. I mean, I, I can't echo enough what Chantal said about. Um, this is more serious than this. I, you know, the, the sort of discussion about 16 to 18-year-olds, I've, I've written regularly against 16-year-olds getting the vote you know, years ago. But I really, I really don't care whether they have the vote or not. What I do care about is, is that everyone's having the discussion about whether they should have the vote or not in the middle of a much more serious discussion. I mean, I'm exasperated. I, I just think, God, there's, do you know what's going on? There's like a big issue here, really important issues, and... It's not going to be solved by giving the 16-year-olds the vote or not having the vote. Uh, they are not going to be turned on to politics by getting the vote. I have the vote. It doesn't mean that... I, I didn't use it the last time, so what's the point of it? That's not going to... And, and somebody just said, we can introduce substance into politics by giving 16-year-olds the vote. I think, what? You genuinely think that the 16-year-olds are going to be able to give the political insights and leadership that will transform some of the great democratic <coughs> problems that we face today? If we genuinely think that, then it, we have to give up. That is not because I don't think that 16-year-olds are interesting, have got something to say. The Institute of Ideas organised a debating competition for 16- to 18-year-olds in which we take them so seriously, it's called the hardest de debating competition in the country, and we intellectually batter them around their head, we set the format up, so they actually have to argue with a huge degree of sophistication. That doesn't mean I think they should have the vote or that they're the solution to democracy. And by saying they shouldn't have the vote, it doesn't mean that I think that they should be gassed or kicked, you know. Because the, because the thing is, now you see, now if you say 16-year-olds shouldn't have the vote, it's like, so you hate young people then, do you? And if you say prisoners shouldn't have the vote, oh, you're kind of a right-wing draconian Daily Mail hate prisoners type. No, I think democracy matters. It's on the line and it's not going to be solved by technical matters like that. And what we have to get out of this discussion, I think, because some brilliant, excellent insights in the panel, not that we'll solve everything, which is, is that it's a big deal what's going on. It's a big deal what's going on. And we're not, it's not going to be solved very easily at all. And it's about us, because we are the demos. And we're going to have to raise our game, to be frank. Um, so, for once, I'm shouting at the audience. Um, uh, okay, so, um, uh, in, in whatever order, I've no idea. Brendan, the um, order that you spoke. Okay, yeah. just briefly, I think, um, see, the problem I have with the discussion of left-wing populism is that I don't really believe in neoliberalism. I just don't believe it exists. I think it's an exaggeration of the situation we currently find ourselves in. And in fact, I'm always struck by the 
amount that our leaders and our so-called radicals share in common, which is actually a belief in state intervention in the market, a belief that growth can go too far, that economic growth can be a bad thing. They actually share the same outlook. They both cleave to the politics that there is, of no, there is no alternative. And that's what needs to be challenged. And I don't care if I'm challenging it by arguing with David Cameron or by arguing with some young person who thinks they're a Marxist, and obviously they're not. Uh, the, but the bigger problem, we always talk about who should vote, how people should vote, what age you should vote at. But the bigger question is, what do we vote for? And that's the question that people avoid. It shouldn't be, how, where do you do your vote? Who should do it? Should it go to all these youngsters? It should be, what do you vote for? And I think we should remember the words of Sylvia Pankhurst, the great suffragette leader, who she talked about the vote in two ways. She used a small v, small v vote, which was the academic act of voting, as she called it, and then she used a capital V vote, which she said is the way in which people seize control of the destiny of their nations. And she said, the quote is, we don't want the vote for academic reasons, we want the vote to share in controlling the destiny of the nation. That is why they wanted the vote. Not because it would make them feel good, or because it would uh, let them do the cross once every four years, because they wanted to control the destiny of the nation. That, at the moment, is not on the agenda, the destiny of the nation, and that's what we need to put back onto the political agenda. Thank you very much. Um, Ivan. Thank you very much. I do believe, of course, we're in a paradoxical situation, because on one level we are freer, and at least in this part of the world, than ever before. And on, you have more rights, all of us. And then basically you have the feeling that you have more rights, but you're losing power. And if you want to change something, this is becoming more difficult. And I do believe this is part of the paradox, because on one level it's okay, on the other it's not. Uh, and from this point of view, for me, the, the real question is what it means to have power today if you're a citizen. What it really means. And from this point of view, it's, I don't believe it's so easy, because people, for example, these days tend to claim if there are going to be more transparency, we're going to be more powerful. Listen, go back to history. Normally people get power when they have secrets shared. Politics is like friendship. It is based on shared secrets. For example, secret vote. By the way, people have been very much empowered in certain societies by allowing secretly to denounce their bosses. Uh, if you're now reading the archives of the 1937 in Soviet Union, one level is terror. On the other, you cannot imagine the level of democratic enthusiasm in the Soviet societies because they have been allowed anonymously to denounce their bosses and for them it was a form of control. And I do believe from this point to be what it means to be powerful today as a citizen, but by the way also as a government, is something that is really should be taken seriously because if we talk about the crisis of democracy, I do believe that we have lost the meaning of what power means anymore. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I must say that I, I was very surprised to hear David making this uh, uh, enthusiastic endorsement of uh, David Graeber because, in fact, the, the, the position of David Graeber and his celebration of those uh, uh, movements like Occupy and Dignaus is precisely the kind of thing that several of us have been criticizing here, and I agree with what Ivan uh, uh, say ab ab about that. I mean, I don't think that uh, th th those movements are the solution to the crisis of representative democracy, because the line of Graeber and, and, and people like him is to say that uh, Get rid of representation, you know, and establish that direct present this form, and, 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 and this is going to be the solution. I think that this is not the solution, and in fact, it's a very dangerous uh, direction to take. And 
I think we must stop celebrating and romanticizing the movement of the 60s, because of course some very positive things came out of it, but as David said before, you know, the good and, 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 and the bad usually go together. And we need also to be aware of the bad of, of the, the, uh, the, the, the 60s. Remember, in fact, uh, what happened after uh, 68 in, in, in France, May 68, and then there were elections, and uh, the, the goal <laughs> won them very uh, uh, handsomely. And the, the reason is because those movements, and this is something we need to learn for, uh, from, they did not manage to make the articulation with political institutions. And I think that's the problem today. You know, we need to articulate social movement in a more, more tradi traditional form, because the bad thing that came out of, of, of 68, uh, and in fact, if you read the book by Luke Boltanski, The New Spirit of Capitalism, and, and Yves Chapello, they show how, in fact, this movement also created the condition in, for the birth of neoliberalism. And I believe there is something like neoliberalism. I'm sorry, I disagree with Brendan there. Uh, and it's a new form of capitalism. So uh, I, we should be aware of the limitation of, of this movement in order not to repeat them. And this is exactly the kind of thing that David Graeber uh, is uh, advocating, and I find that extremely dangerous. Okay, thank you very much indeed. And then, and then uh, I think what David Graeber is right about is simply that it takes 40, 50 years to play out. That's what I was saying. Um, and I completely agree, nothing's changed politically in the last 25 years. That's why the world 20, 40, 50 years ahead is so hard to imagine, because we know how fast everything else has changed. It's unimaginable to me that we'll have another 25 years where it won't change politically and technological change will happen at the same space, pace. But we're in a place now where it's really hard for us to see how the two are going to link up, because all the change is happening outside of politics. And I think that's the gap. And I just want to end with a practical suggestion, because there's... This is what I would do, right, to address some of these concerns. I would have on the ballot paper at the next general election a box that says none of the above. And then if none of the above wins, then the people who voted none of the above, all their names, they lose anonymity at this point, get put in a hat, one of them gets pulled out, and one of that group then becomes the representative for that constituency. Then you get a choice. Do you want party politics or democratic politics? You get, a, you get to see it play out. You get professional politicians and amateur politicians playing alongside each other. You get party politics and non-party politics. It's a real democratic choice. I think it's a great idea. It's clearly never, ever going to happen. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.